Number two, Rod. This morning we turn in the New Testament to Paul's letter to the Christians at Colossae. Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 through to 23. Colossians 2, 16 to 23. The heading for the section in the NIV is Freedom from Human Rules. From verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belonged to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle Do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence and we thank our lord for his word amen amen thanks bruce morning everyone we continue our series in the book of exodus we have concluded our series on the ten commandments but we are now going to dance our way through chapters 20, the remaining part of 20, to the end of the book, chapter 40. So if you would like to be reading that, that would be helpful to read it in advance. Today we are covering chapters 21 and 22, with an emphasis upon the end of chapter 20, which is what I want to read to you now. This is our Old Testament reading. This is from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, and from verse 18. And I want to read to the end of the chapter as well, down to verse 26. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpets and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance 
while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. And then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. And do not go up to my altar on steps where your private parts will be exposed. This is God's word, and we ask him to bless it to us. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you as followers of the Lord Jesus for your grace and goodness to us in saving us and in giving us your written revelation, your word, the scriptures. As we have read from them now, we pray that you would grant to us understanding minds, receptive hearts, and obedient wills. We ask this, Father, because Jesus is our Lord and our Saviour, and we want to please him. We pray in his name. And everybody said? To recap quickly, we have worked our way through the book of Exodus, where God has remarkably and miraculously delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. Moses appeared to Moses the burning bush and appointed him to be a mediator between him, a leader in Israel. We've seen the ten plagues where God judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians and through the same process delivers his people. The miracle of the Red Sea, the miracle of the provision of the manna and we have arrived at Mount Sinai and we are still at the base of Mount Sinai And we have seen and worked through God giving his moral law, the Ten Commandments, to Moses, through Moses, to his people. And in fact, the people heard God's voice giving the Ten Commandments. And God wrote the Ten Commandments on stone with his own finger. It's the only bit that he did do so. This is an accurate, true historical record. There are some people, and probably many people these days, who would deny that this is the case. They call it fiction, parable. They call it invented history. The Bible, they say, the Bible is not to be taken as literal history, it's spiritual history. It's telling a story that comforts us, that impresses us, that inspires and guides us. It's the same level as Aesop's fables or fairy stories. To them, so God didn't speak from Sinai. The Ten Commandments are not God's voice or God's word to us. They are simply human legislation, collated, summarised and expanded, as we'll see this morning, in various case law examples. Ten Commandments are not written by the finger of God, they say. It's written by Moses. First draft gets added to and expanded as we go along. The implication, of course, of their belief is their desire for this. The conclusion is, and therefore, your obedience to the commandments is personal preference. It's optional. Take it or leave it. There's no holy obligation for us to obey the sovereign will of God, they say. And they are wrong. Did God come to Sinai? Yes. Did God speak the Ten Commandments? Yes. Are we to obey the Ten Commandments? Yes. No one in Israel doubted 
the experience of both visible and audible signs. They saw it, they heard it, they knew it, and they were afraid. They were terrified. God, in fact, instructed a boundary to be placed around the base of Mount Sinai so that the people were not to cross over. And if they did cross over, it would be the death penalty. After God appeared, back in chapter 19, we are told that there is... Uh, smoke on the mountain on the morning of the third day there was thunder lightning a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast the trumpet blast was the call the assembly call come assemble that's what the trumpet invitation was everyone in the camp trembled they saw it, they heard it, and they were terrified. And there's a boundary around there. And after God spoke the Ten Commandments, the people are drawing back. They're walking away. They put a distance between them and God. There was no need for a boundary. They weren't crossing the line. They were absolutely scared. And in fact, they conclude, they say to Moses when he comes down the mountain, you speak to us. Don't let God speak to us. If you speak to us, we'll listen and obey. If, you let, if God speaks to us, we're going to die. <clears throat> Interestingly, they're correct. If you jump over to chapter 5 of Deuteronomy, which is a, a retelling and a repeating of the law, and particularly of this incident, you have God's perspective. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 28, Moses is telling the people, The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said to me, I've heard what these people said to you. And everything they said was good. And if you look in the context, God is saying, when we said, you speak to us, don't let God speak to us. If you speak to us, we'll obey. But if God speaks, we'll die. And God says, what they've said is good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always, so that it might go well with them and with their children forever. God says they got it right. You do need a mediator. You can't come into my presence all by yourself. God is teaching his people that way back then and we know that to be true even today. And we have a mediator. Why were they so frightened? Three reasons, very quickly. Why were they so frightened? Number one, because God demands total allegiance in every aspect of life. They heard it in the Ten Commandments. And it petrified them. It's like you're signing a contract and you suddenly realise the implications of this contract, this covenant that you're entering into. And it terrifies you. God demands total allegiance to every aspect of life. Priorities, worship, our time, relationships, possessions, our bodies, our speech, and the, even the desires of our heart. God claims allegiance in all areas. Number two, they, ex they heard and they knew that we, they had to obey all of God's commands all of the time. God had set a very high righteous standard. And number three, what terrified them were the threats of judgment, the penalties that came with it. And these physical signs that were there, the thunder and the lightning and the darkness and the smoke and the shaking mountain, all of that, the trumpet blasts, all of those same symbols and signs will appear, interestingly, on the final day at the Day of Judgment. They are pre-warnings. Spurgeon says, if giving of the law, when God gave the law, as yet unbroken, if it was attended by such a display of awesome power, what will the final day be like 
when the Lord takes vengeance on those who willfully break his law and despise his name? Good question, good comment. If this terrified them then and they hadn't broken the law, what is it going to be like on the last day? Spurgeon goes on to say, there are no sweet sounds of harp here, there are no songs of angels, there's just an awful terrifying voice. With great privilege comes great responsibility. So the people witnessed these signs. The whole people, the whole nation was present. They witnessed and they heard the revelation of God. Not a small group, not one individual, Moses. So it's not fabricated. This whole nation heard it. It's a historical event. All sorts of people were there, young and old, male and female. The highly intelligent as well as those who struggled, those who were physically capable and those who were physically weak or whatever. The sceptics, everybody was there. Everybody encountered this God who spoke to them. God was clearly demonstrating to this people that he is accessible and that he is knowable through his revelation, through his word, that he is near to all who call upon him, that he is a loving, gracious, gentle God, but that he is also a frightening judge whom we are to revere. When we get into trouble in our lives, when we get in trouble with the law, if it's serious trouble with the law, then what do we do? We hire a lawyer. That's what Israel does. They realise they're in trouble. And they said, Moses, can you represent us to God? Can you be our lawyer? Can you be our mediator, our advocate? Interestingly, God had already appointed Moses to do that way back at the burning bush. But here in this experience, it's now Israel coming to realise they now understand we need a mediator. We need someone to go between us, to stand in the gap between us and them. And as I read to you from Deuteronomy 5, God said, that's right. So the truth for us, we need a mediator as well. And then Moses tells them God's response to their response. In verse 20, Moses speaks to them for God. He says, don't be afraid. Too late. Don't be afraid. God hasn't come to destroy you. He's come to test you, it says. He wants to see what's in your heart. Will you obey him? Will you do what he wants? He certainly wants you to fear him, not be terrified of and, and, and be in dread of, not that fear. It's different to that. It's rather very deep reverence and respect. The fear of disappointing him. Great respect, reverence, awe, not abject terror. God has come to test you. So the fear of him might be on you and so that you won't stray, so that you won't go aside. So why does God give the law? Three quick reasons. God gave the law to restrain sin. Without the law, there is no knowledge of sin. Without the law, there is no sin because sin is the breaking of the law, the standard. So the first reason God gave the law was to restrain sin. Why do you obey the law? Oh, because you're good and pure and upright in heart? No. Because of the fear of the consequences. Why is it that when the police car is driving behind us, we suddenly obey the law? Why is it that we go below the speed limit when the police car is behind us or on the road beside us? Because we are righteous and good in heart? No, because we don't want to get caught. That's the truth, isn't it? 
God gives the law to restrain sin. God gives the law to reveal sin, to reveal sin in us. We wouldn't know that it was sin unless God told us and the Lord don't do that. Oh, that's wrong. As we train our children, don't do that, do this. They won't know unless we train them and teach them and set the standard. That's what God does through his law. And thirdly, the law is given not only to restrain sin through its penalties and punishments and deterrence, it's not only given to reveal sin in us as well as in society, but it's also given to instruct us in righteousness, in how we should live the ways of wisdom and how we should apply justice to situations where sin has been committed. So God gives the law for those three purposes. And Israel came to the point of realising that they needed a mediator, the mediator who would stand in the gap before them. And God says to them, you yourselves saw that I spoke to you from heaven. It's interesting use of language, isn't it? You saw that I spoke, not you heard that I spoke. They saw something, those signs and manifestations of the divine presence, and it was scary. Which is why whenever angels turn up, or whenever the Lord himself especially turns up, in any theophany or any experience in the scriptures, the people always hit the ground or collapse. He is overwhelming in his presence. That's why the Bible says that no one, no person, has ever seen God in his pure form. We see a manifestation of him. We can see him in the person of Jesus. We can see him as he appears in human form as he walks and talks with Abraham. We can cope with that. But in his pure essence, in his pure form, no one has seen or can see. He dwells in light which is inadmissible. So glorious is he. You yourself saw, God says, that I spoke to you from heaven. God spoke, not Moses. I spoke, God says. And it's from heaven. God is not part of this world. He made this world, but he is above and beyond and outside this world as he is outside of time. So therefore, you cannot make a visible, physical representation of him. That's why God goes on to say, in verse 23, do not make any idols to come alongside me not of gold, not of silver. You cannot represent me physically because I'm beyond the physical. This command, this instruction early on restates for us first and second commandment. It's repeated to the Israelites because God wanted it to sink in. He wanted it to be clear. Interestingly, in a matter of weeks, they're going to break this very commandment. They might do it for Seemingly good motivation, Exodus 32 and the golden calf story, but it's wrong. God says very clearly, do not make any gods to be alongside me. Don't make for yourself gods of silver or gods of gold or gods of anything. We need to hear that again, like they did. We need to hear that as well because we get tempted to displace God with things as well. And our spiritual lives suffer because of it. God refuses to share his glory with imposters or with frauds or with anyone else. He's a jealous God and he sees idols especially, but even us when we take our other so-called idols, displacing him from first, he sees, God sees that as us seeking alternatives to him, of giving to it or them what should only be given to him. And he is jealous 
for us and for his own glory. So what does God instruct the people to do? Right on the base of Sinai. This is before the instructions about uh, the tabernacle and about the building of the altars and everything else. But right here, right now, at the base of Mount Sinai, God gives them instructions. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep, your goats and your cattle. Make an altar of earth. So it's low. It's down to earth. It's not high and it's not ornate. And he goes on in verse 26 and following to say, if you're going to make it of stone, then just use natural stone. Don't shape it. Don't take a human tool to it. Don't polish it. Don't pretty it up. Keep it simple. Keep it pure. What's the problem with making stone and chiseling it and shaping it and building it? Well, firstly... In many of God's laws, it's in contrast to what the pagan religions were doing. And their uh, altars were quite ornate and quite expensive and quite remarkable. A demonstration of human craftsmanship, glorified man. That's why God says, don't do that. Use what I have created when you want to sacrifice and atone for your sin. It's got nothing to do with human craftsmanship. It's got everything to do with you being simple, pure, and obedient. So God says, build an altar, make it of earth. If you're going to make it of stone, then it's got to be natural stone. Just pile it up. And secondly, not only don't use shaped hewn stone, dressed stone, and don't put steps on it. It's not to be elevated. And God gives a reason here. One of the reasons it's not to be elevated what the pagans did but it's also because what the pagans did in their worship is when they sacrificed they also associated with that nudity nakedness and sexuality they went together when you were worshiping god you either danced around the altar or you slept with a temple uh, altar prostitute the pagans associated sexuality with sacrifice and god is trying to separate it he says when you bring make the altar if it's made of stone or earth no steps, because if there are steps there, then because you are wearing robes, then people might be able to see up your robes and see your nakedness, see your private parts. So God is separating and making that very clear. When we worship him, it's to be simple, it's to be pure. And it's not to be tainted by anything of human ingenuity and craftsmanship. Yes, we are to bring our best. Yes, we are to do our best. But it's not to bring glory to ourselves, it's to glorify him. That's where the emphasis must always be. God doesn't need altars of silver or of gold. He just needs to keep it simple, down to earth. 20 years ago, I think I've told you this before. It's about 20, might be 25 years ago. And a previous church with their associate pastor went away on a retreat one weekend and we were wrestling with wording for a mission statement, a purpose statement for the church of how do we encapsulate what the Bible is teaching and make it a mission statement. And one of the, we came up with several, one of the ones we came up with is that we as a church would be um, ordinary people following the down-to-earth God. I liked it because I thought of it. The other pastor didn't. 
He didn't like the, the idea of saying we're ordinary people because we're not ordinary people, he was wanting to say. We are special because God loves us and we're Christians and we're children of God. We're not just ordinary people. Whereas I was trying to emphasise, well, while that's spiritually true that we are children of God, we're also just ordinary people. And I love the expression, and we're following the down-to-earth God, because that's what he did. He came down to earth. And that's demonstrated right back here at Sinai with an earthen altar. Keeping it simple, keeping it pure. What do you do on an altar? Well, God talks about two sacrifices. Did I miss one? Yep. Oh, thank you. Did you do that? Thank you. How about how about you do it? <clears throat> Two offerings. Having heard God's words from Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, the people realise we need to confess. We need to get right with God. And so the altar is not what's important. It's what happens on the altar which becomes important. What happens in the heart of the people as they are doing this. They are to bring two offerings. One is a burnt offering, one is a fellowship offering. Two examples. The burnt offering is one that is for atonement with a whole animal, sheep, bull, whatever it is. The whole animal is burnt on the altar. Your hands are placed on the head, you identify with it. It's... Uh, you understand that it's a substitute. What's going to happen to this animal is what should happen to me because of my sin. And then the throat is cut, the blood is poured out, and you collect the blood. And then the blood is scattered around the altar or sprinkled on the side of the altar. It's, the life is in the blood. It's my life on the altar. My life poured out because of what I have done. And the animal is completely burned. And interestingly, the word that we translate as a burnt offering means literally to go up. Because the smoke of the burnt offering goes up. And Jesus, who was our lamb for sacrifice, our burnt offering, he also went up. He both rose up and he went up, ascended into heaven. Another picture pointing towards the Lord Jesus. So the burnt offering is about atonement for my sin, substitute. And innocence dies in the place of the guilty. The fellowship offering, which is related to the word shalom, which means peace, and so often it's called a peace offering. It's about thanks and praise, and, a, and it's about fellowship. The whole animal was not consumed, just the best bit of it. And the best bit of it in their culture, and according to God's word to them, instructions to them, was the fat. That they took the fat, and particularly around the central organs, especially the liver, and they burnt that. That which is closest to the heart, if you like. The rest of the animal was not consumed. It was simply cooked till it was tender. And then the rest of the animal was taken and it was eaten by your family. You were celebrating and giving thanks to God for whatever goodness he had given to you, whatever answers to prayer he had given you, for forgiving you for your sins and so on. The equivalent for us is like a barbecue or a party or a feast. That's what the fellowship offering was. So that's what God says for them to do. You've heard my word, you realise you fall short of it, build an altar, bring your sacrifices. First make atonement for your sin and then let's celebrate and give thanks to God for we are in community with him. That's the flow. And in the midst of this, God gives a wonderful promise. Promise. Verse 22, I think it is. 
When you do this, God says, wherever you cause my name to be honoured, it's in verse 24, I will come to you and I will bless you. Wherever we cause his name to be honoured, wherever he places his name to be honoured. And of course, this is before the tabernacle, but God would give instructions to build a mobile tent, a tabernacle. And wherever that was, they were to come and worship. And as they came, he would come. He would presence himself with his people. And he would bless them. Do good for them. Forgive them for their sin. Instruct them and empower them in the way forward. Lead them and guide them. Then from the tabernacle it goes to the temple, from the temple it gets through the exile, is destroyed and then there is the synagogue and then out of the synagogue comes the church. And ultimately, of course, it's in the person, the body of the Lord Jesus. Wherever I cause my name to be honoured, I will come to you and bless you. Israel was most likely worried that if we leave Sinai, we're walking away from the presence of God and God is here promising them, indicating that he is not exclusively connected to Mount Sinai, but that there will be multiple places and in multiple situations where he can be honoured and where he will come and where he will bless them. So James 4.8 says to us, draw near to God and what? He will draw near to you, to honour him. And as we honour him in this context, in this church family, in this community of God's people, then he comes to us and he blesses us. So the people went through that experience, they go back to their tents, Moses goes up the mountain, now I'm going to go very quickly. Chapter 21 begins, these are the laws that you are to set before them. So Moses has gone back up and now God is going to give him the civil law. It's given the moral law, Ten Commandments. Now in chapter 21 there are seven topics. Chapter 22 there are 17 topics. What's interesting from our perspective, it's very badly edited. It's all over the shop. It's duts and weaves and it's deliberate. God doesn't do things by accident. What God has done and arranged, well, here are the topics. In chapter 21, it covers topics of slavery. Talk about that very quickly in a second. In the context of slavery, it talks about marriage, verse 10 and 11 in chapter 21. It talks about murder. In verse 15, it talks about what happens if a child attacks the parents. The answer is death penalty. Verse 17, what happens if a child curses their parents? Answer is death penalty. These were the good old days, weren't they? Verse 16, kidnapping. Death penalty. What happens if people quarrel and have blows and they hurt another person? Well, they are to recover and you may have to compensate. You may have to pay for it. What happens in the blows if you kill them? Death penalty. Life for life. What about animals, bulls? If the bull gores a person, well, if the person recovers, you pay for it, you make restitution. What if it kills a person? Well, the bull gets killed, but if the owner knew the bull had done that before, then the owner gets killed as well. There's even a ruler in there in verse 33 about digging holes. What if you dig a hole and you don't cover it? Well, if somebody falls into it, same. If they go to hurt, and they heal, then it's restitution. And if they die, you die, because you dug a hole and didn't cover it. What does all of this mean? Well, as you read it and think about it, and you're going to have to think about it and read some more about it, but God takes all these different aspects of life, from slavery to marriage to bulls to digging holes, 
to people having fights where they get injured or killed, and he's got responses to it. Every one of these is an amplification and expansion of the Ten Commandments. And God has deliberately shuffled it all together because all of life is under his watchful eye and concern. There is no part of our life which is not directed by his moral law. Every aspect of life. And it's all about loving God and about being loving people, about being respectful and about being helpful, about being honest with and about caring for. A whole lot more of things. Every day, ordinary life covered by all of these things. It's not borrowed. It's very similar to the other ancient laws, even older, the laws of Code of Hammurabi and some of the Egyptian laws and so on. While it's similar, and that's explainable because there is only one God and we all have a conscience and in every culture and every nation has very similar laws about don't murder, don't steal and don't commit adultery and don't this, the moral law. But the thing to note are the differences in God's civil laws that he gave his people and there are significant differences. For instance, in chapter 21, God tells us that the unborn child, the fetus, is to be treated the same way that an adult person would be. That if a baby is prematurely born and injured, then it would be eye for eye. The person who caused the premature birth through a fight or whatever, then they would bear the penalty. If the child died, the person who caused the premature birth would die. The fetus is treated on the same quality as an adult person. Think about that when in terms of abortion. God's standard. In verse 31 of chapter 21, sons and daughters, daughters, women, girls, treated the same. All the way through God's law, you'll find women and children, and particularly widows and orphans, are elevated to the same level, that everybody is on the same playing field. Nobody is above or below. Some people belong that have more money or whatever, but God even has a solution to that. That's how chapter 21 begins. The NIV is very correct when it talks about servants. Literally, it's slavery. The trouble is we have an idea of what slavery is, and that's not the Hebrew idea, which is why the NIV translates it as servants, servants, which is accurate in terms of how we understand the word. And it's not about... In fact, verse 16 says, if you kidnap somebody and you put them into forced slavery, death penalty. Can't do it. What they did in Africa and what they did in America and what they did in the Middle East is against God's standard. What God said was, if you get into debt and you can't pay your debt off, what you can do is you can go sell yourself. You can sell your service to the person you owe money to. You become his servant. He has to feed you, clothe you, and place a, uh, provide a accommodation for you. And you work for him, but you don't get paid. Your remuneration will go towards paying off your debt. Brilliant system. And then not only that, it's limited by six years. After six years, I go free. The person who was in debt. And then if you read it carefully, there's rules for men and women and so on. When you come to chapter 22, there is also a list of 17 topics from thieving 
I'll tell you just one. It's a, a thief. If you read it, it sounds really weird. If a thief breaks into your house at night and you get up and find him and you hit him and he dies, no guilt. But if the thief breaks in in the daytime and you hit him, or with a bat or whatever, and he dies, guilty, death penalty, life for life. How come? If you break in at night, not guilty. If you come in the daytime, guilty. Sounds weird. Answer. The assumption is, during the night, the family are going to be home and in bed. So if a thief breaks in at night, the thief must be prepared to do something to those people if he gets caught. So therefore, you hitting them and killing them is really acting in self-defence. But if it happens in the daytime, the assumption is in daytime, the family's not at home. They're out at work. There's nobody at home. So the thief breaking into the house hasn't come with the intent to hurt people. He's come to pinch property, pinch stuff. But if you are at home and you kill him, then he's not threatening your life. You've taken his life to protect your property. And people, even a thief breaking in, is more important and valuable than any of the possessions that we have. Make sense? I think it does. So God gives his law to his people. Well, so what? What does all this mean for us? Three, four conclusions very quickly. All of life is under God's rules. All three laws, moral, civil, ceremonial, it all points to both Jesus and points to how we should live righteous laws. Number two, if simply hearing the law, as the people of Israel did, frightened them, how terrible it will be of how God will deal with those who are breaking it. We need a mediator. And God has, of course, provided us a mediator in the person of Jesus. The law points us towards him. He fulfilled the law. He paid the penalty for the law. He sets us free from being saved by the law. But when he saves us, he points us back to the law. Because the law not only restrains sin, it reveals sin and it instructs in righteousness. The law is good if one uses it lawfully, the Apostle Paul says, if we use it correctly. The law was not given to save us. Does that mean if a person could keep all of the laws that they would be saved? Yep, go ahead, knock, knock yourself out, have a go. And you'll realise it's impossible. You cannot keep the law. That's why God set the standard so high, so we would fail, so we would realise that we have failed, so we would realise I need God's forgiveness, I need a mediator, I need someone who can save me and help me. God's righteousness permeates all of life. We need a mediator. Jesus is that mediator. We're going to come to the table in a moment and remember him in his death, his resurrection and in his presence in his life with us. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word, for your laws. Help us to understand them and the intent of them. May they restrain us and our society from sin. May you use your words and your laws to reveal sin in us in our actions, in our attitudes, in our speaking. And Lord, use your word and law to instruct us in how to live, to follow you in the ways of righteousness. And we want to thank you that we have a mediator in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.